Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. University of Minnesota professor of media ethics and the law, Jane Kirkley, who lives within two miles of where George Floyd was killed, is back with us on the program today. And Professor Kirtley held a webinar with her students on the ethics of media reporting uh, during the uh, during these last 12 days on Wednesday. Jane, thank you very much for coming back to the to the program. We spoke with you last weekend and uh, last Saturday, and it was a very tense time for you. How has this past week been in Minneapolis? You know, the situation has changed uh, quite a bit in the last uh, week or so. Um, I think one of the ways it's changed is that we've had peaceful protests almost exclusively. Um, you know, some would say it was because we activated the National Guard here, and that kind of changed the whole climate. But I think probably equally, if not more important, was the fact that all four police officers have now been formally charged with some kind of um, criminal violation that helped to tamp down things. Also, um, the memorial service for George Floyd that was held earlier this week um, also, I think, brought together people in a way that I haven't seen here in the Twin Cities really ever. Uh, very diverse crowd, uh, great gathering of people of goodwill, and I think that went a long way towards um, you know cha- changing changing the dynamic here. Plus, um, the community has pulled together in a significant way in terms of providing assistance to both business owners and just residents who have been displaced or or otherwise uh, seriously damaged by the protests and and not so much the protests. I mean, I need to make the distinction between the protests, the peaceful protests, and the rioting and looting that also occurred. Um, So, I I mean, it's it's a very different situation here than it was when we talked last Saturday. Let me ask you about city leadership. Uh, a counselor, who is the son of Keith Ellison, I believe, the attorney general from Minnesota, yes. tweeted his personal support for Antifa, and I believe he is also the council member who's calling for the disbanding and the abolishing of the Minneapolis police entirely, which was supported by the Minneapolis uh, city council president, but the mayor has refused to go along, and the mayor was booed by protesters for his decision. Can you give us some some uh, color to that story, some uh, some background, some texture? Well, I, I mean, I, I, will, I will tell you this, that um, even though the situation of the Minneapolis police has only been kind of in the international view in the last week or two, um, this has been a long and continuous process. Um, a lot of issues uh, with disproportionate arrests of people of color in the Twin Cities, or at least accusations that this has been the case, just general tone deafness on the part of the police, and a sense that not any recent um, office of the mayor or city council was taking this particularly seriously. Um, you're quite right that um, Keith Ellison's son, um, is who, who is who is said is our attorney general, um, and will be prosecuting the case, has spoken out. Um, and he's not the only one, but he's certainly one of the most vocal ones calling for disbanding uh, the police as they exist today. It's not unique to Minneapolis. Those calls are coming out in a number of different places around the country, but uh, obviously we're sort of ground zero, so I think it's getting a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Are people having dialogue with one another? We, we were talking earlier today with uh, the Premier of Saskatchewan, 
who's the chair of the Council of the Federation, all of the premiers and the territorial leaders in Canada. And one of the convers- one of the topics that came up was dialogue, talking to one another, having conversation. Has there been an increase of really meaningful dialogue um, among the people of Minneapolis or, or the state of Minnesota that you're aware of? Well, I would say that we've, we're setting the stage for it, but it hasn't really happened in a meaningful way yet. I will say that just watching, we were talking about media coverage earlier, and, and I think the news media here have been trying to go out of their way to give voice to people who have previously felt that they were voiceless. I, and, and here we're talking about you know, people from a variety of groups, uh, not just uh, African Americans, but also indigenous people, as we call them here, um, people that are have Hispanic background, um, all of whom I think have felt that they really didn't have a place at the table here, despite the fact that, that there are some representatives, including our lieutenant governor, who um, are, are from our people of color. The fact remains that I think there's a, a, a real sense that these people's concern are just not being heard. So there's a lot of talk about what's going to happen once things calm down, and and I think there has been an opportunity for them to be heard in ways that perhaps were foreclosed to them in the past. But, you know, it's... It's really, it was only a week ago today that we were watching in horror as a semi-trailer truck was plowing into protesters on one of our highway bridges. I I think we want it to happen, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah. One of the important factors is how this story, how these developments are transmitted to the people. And that's where the media have their role to play journalists have to tell their do their job and and get the story to the consumers to the people who want to know what's being what's happening you know what's happening outside my town what's happening outside my state what's happening in my town what's happening in my state now you had a webinar i understand with your students on media ethics uh, jane from the university of minnesota professor jane curtley is my guest professor of media ethics and law at the university of minnesota what were you discussing, and what what were some of the things that you heard? What did you raise with your students, and what did you hear from them? Well, to, just as as just as a point of clarification, it was not just me. I also had with me my colleague Chris Eisen, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist from the Minneapolis Star Tribune, our major newspaper, and is now a, a faculty member with us. And we were talking about basically two things: the legal issues that have arisen, and I think you can't discount this because. We saw unprecedented uh, attacks on journalists from uh, law enforcement. That's a word I hesitate to use because it's such a loaded word, but it's very hard to overlook the fact that when journalists identify themselves clearly with their credentials and so forth, the best response they would get is, I don't care, get out of here, and, and it escalated to the point of them being fired upon with rubber bullets and tear gas and so forth. It's difficult to cover a story when you're under attack in that way, um, especially when there's really no debate that journalists were acting legally in those instances. So we talked about that, but we also talked about um, the difficulty of covering uh, crises like this um, when, you know, in some respects, you really have not been covering the communities that are aggrieved in these situations in a regular way. So we talked about that. And we also talked about um, providing people with the information they need now immediately, you know, if there's a, a altercation going on or there's threats to property or to people, but also making sure that you're doing it in the proper context. 
Um, it's very difficult if you're a broadcast journalist in particular, but even print people who are using Twitter and other social media to report, to be certain that you're giving the proper context to something that's occurring at a particular time. And, of course, the other challenge we face always as journalists is you, you, you want to get on the ground eyewitness accounts, but you have to take into account that people that are talking to you may have their own agendas. That includes protesters, of course, but it also includes law enforcement authorities who were telling us one set of stories when this all began and within a couple of days had to walk that back about the issue of whether there were outside agitators coming in. That, that had been their narrative for a while, but now it appears that the majority of protesters that were arrested all had Minnesota addresses. So while you can't dismiss the fact that there could be um, outsiders coming in to act opportunistically, I, it, it was kind of uh, typical Minnesotan, frankly, to say, oh, well, you know, our own locals would never do this. Well, that wasn't entirely true. In fact, it wasn't true at all. There were, certainly were local people that were involved in, in some of these opportunistic uh, looting and, and destruction of property and so forth. Again, everyone's under a lot of pressure when they're covering breaking news. I think that the most important thing that we were saying was that if you're going to if you're going to report something like that in in the you know heat of the moment, you have to make sure as sure as you can that it's accurate. And if it's not, you have to be prepared to correct it as soon as possible, recognizing that you know after the fact corrections may not reach people. So it's a serious responsibility to do real, real-time reporting um, when, when you're dealing with this kind of situation. Yeah. Jane, what about your students? Um, what, what was critical to them? These are going to be um, these are young people who are either going to go into the legal profession or journalism or both, or are certainly looking at it very actively now. What was significant to them? What is what is most important to them? I think that many of them are really very seriously committed to the notion of social justice and what they see as a pattern and practice um, where social justice is denied to segments of our population. I, I, didn't, I do not see um, militancy, uh, to use a term from the 1960s, in the sense that they want to go out and destroy things, but they would like to see the system seriously reformed. From a journalistic perspective, that raises the interesting ethical question of what's your role as a journalist in terms of promoting that. Um, we get a, got a lot of questions on the webinar, too. You know, should journalists be retweeting photos of protesters because that might lead to those protesters being arrested? And, in fact, the FBI and other law enforcement officials have asked citizens to turn over photos and video. They're not subpoenaing them yet, but they're asking them to turn them over. And... You know, are some of my students say, well, I, you know, I don't want to do that. I feel like I'm being an arm of the government. On the other hand, I live here too, and I, and I want my city to be safe. So what's your role as a journalist? Is it, is it to assist in law enforcement authorities, or is it simply to provide information to the public as a whole? And by the same token, is it your job to advocate for a particular point of view or simply provide the facts from as many sides as you can find and then let the public decide how they want uh, policy to change, if, if indeed they do? That's a challenging issue. It really is. And I've run into this over the years periodically where I've had information about something or someone and uh, police might have been interested in it. It wasn't a criminal case, but it was something they might have been interested in or speaking to the person. But I had said to that person, if you speak with me, I will not divulge who you are. And and I wouldn't do it in a criminal situation. I would never make that kind of a, um, a agreement. 
But, but it is a time, there comes a time where you have to ask yourself, so what is my responsibility? How do I ethically behave in this? What is the really the, the public need? And what's for the public good? And then you should be moved by, by, by that. Uh, and, and certainly the arrangements that you agree to. Now, Democrats and Republicans have been at each other's proverbial throats as the November national U.S. election closes in. Now, they're being somewhat careful about what they say to each other, about each other, somewhat careful what they say about each other, about uh, what, you know, what the parties stand for and where they stand and who's responsible for, for what's happened over the last uh, 12 days and years and, you know, much longer than that in the United States. What's your view of how of how politicians from the White House to the Senate to the House, the states and the cities have behaved and are engaged in this crisis. Because what they're doing now foretells perhaps what they're going to be doing and saying in the next five and a half months before Americans vote. Well, what's interesting to me is how you know the, the debate and the discussion and the dialogue up until 12 days ago was focused almost entirely on the impact of COVID-19 on the economy, on the election, potentially. I mean, that's what everyone was talking about. And, and as I'm sure you know, it's been highly politicized in this country about how states and localities should respond to the pandemic, whether they should open up and so forth. Now we've got a topic that is, you know, related in a way because there are genuine public health issues arising from all of these protests. But I think everyone realizes that we're talking about something that is is much more deeply rooted in this country's history. And there's plenty of blame to spread around. Um, I don't see this as exclusively a Republican or Democratic issue at all, and I don't think most right-thinking people would, would characterize it that way. However... The reality is, and if you'll forgive me, I, I just have to say this, the, the, the language and the rhetoric that is coming from Pro- President Trump, that's coming from the White House, is extremely dismissive of a lot of these concerns that are being raised. And the, just the language he uses to characterize the protesters and so forth indicates, uh, in my view, utter contempt for them and the concerns that they have. And, you know, his, his threats about, you know, looting equals shooting and, and all these kinds of things where he really suggests that a segment of the population is the enemy of the, of the public is, to me, just simply appalling. And I think this has a trickle-down effect. There's no doubt that when people, whether they're other politicians in the same party or whether they're law enforcement officers or whoever they might be, hear that coming from the president, it has to have an effect on them. And that, to me, I mean, some people say this is just exposing something that's been there for a very long time. Now they feel comfortable expressing it. I don't know if that's true, but... It's certainly a, a, a profound issue for us. Here Jane, in the the, it's really all about the clock now. And <laughs> I thank you so much. You've always been such a great voice of reason, and you've provided us with incredible information from Minneapolis over the last uh, 10 days. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll talk again soon. Good thank luck you. to you, and stay safe. Stay safe. Thanks. Professor Jane Kirtley. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.